Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin today, I would like to thank fellow saloners Ian W. and Joel L. for their donations to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. So uh, thank you both for your continuing support of these podcasts. And uh, as you know, each Monday night I host a Zoom conversation with any of my Patreon supporters who want to join in. Although last night I messed up and launched the wrong meeting room, (laughs) which left some of my supporters wondering what had happened to me. Well, it was a simple mistake made by a guy who is eventually going to have to admit that sometimes he acts like those dusty old farts that he once made fun of himself. (laughs) Anyway, in one of our Zoom chats a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that we talked about was that it is important for the psychonauts of the world to become more public about what these medicines mean to us. While we all agree that it is important to conduct proper medical and scientific inquiries into psychedelics, many of us also believe that it is equally important that discussions about these substances not be confined strictly to medical and scientific studies. In other words, when given the opportunity to tell our own psychedelic stories, well, I think we should do so. And that, of course, is the purpose of the Salon 2 podcast, where Lex Pelger traveled around the country and recorded dozens of these psychedelic tales for me to podcast here in the salon. And a few of the psychonauts tried to describe the visuals that they saw, but to be honest, that's like describing a dream. If it wasn't your dream, it's not all that compelling. However, most of these stories were about the transformations and aha moments that took place as a result of a psychedelic experience. And, I should add... Not all of these instances were positive. And I think that's important too, because we shouldn't really sugarcoat somebody's description of a bad result from a psychedelic experience. For the most part, however, the tales of bad trips seem to be the result of not knowing what they were doing or a bad set and setting. And I'm not criticizing anyone here because, well, just like many of our fellow saloners, I made some really big mistakes myself while I was learning how to use these powerful mind-altering medicines. And that's what these stories are teaching us. Because after hearing one of them, you may say to yourself, Man, I'm never going to try that or do something that stupid. For example, in a recent podcast, we heard a woman say that she not only took a bubble bath after taking a psychedelic substance, but she then held her breath under water for as long as she could. Now, had I been in the room when she told that story, I would have had to stand up and shout, What the hell do you think you were doing? That's sheer madness. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you've already heard my warning about never using a psychedelic substance in or around water. And I have good reason for that advice. If you've listened to the second podcast from here in the salon, it's a recording of a talk that Terrence McKenna gave in Palenque in 1999. That recording was made by my friend Noah, who was one of the most experienced psychonauts that I knew. Well, Noah, even though he knew better, decided to smoke some DMT one night while he was in the bathtub. He drowned. Another friend of mine was one of the leading Asian-American women filmmakers, 
and she became involved with a group of edgy experimenters who were smoking 5-MeO in a jacuzzi and then seeing who could hold their breath underwater the longest. Well, my friend took a couple of hits of 5-MeO, held her breath, and began floating face down in the water. Another woman was in the jacuzzi with her, but she'd smoked 5-MeO herself, and so she just sat there and watched our friend drown. Now these were two very highly experienced trippers, and they both knew better. Yet they stupidly killed themselves by accident, by very preventable accidents, I should add. Need I say more about the stupidity of mixing water and psychedelics? Well, uh, that should be enough of a lecture to last you for a while. (laughs) So uh, I'll get off my soapbox now and get on with today's program. As you have no doubt guessed, today we're going to listen to the final session of the March 1996 Terrence McKenna workshop that was held at the Esalen Institute near Big Sur, California. Once again, I want to thank Ian Wynn, who not only loaned me these tapes to play here in the salon, but he is also a direct donor to the salon as well as one of my Patreon supporters. And I'd like to remind you about Ian's book, The Techno-Pagan Octopus Messiah, which had its genesis in this weekend workshop of McKenna's that we've been listening to. Now, uh, if you're young and able to travel, this would be a great book to take along. Or if you can't afford to travel the world then this book will take you vicariously on an interesting trip. And uh, I'll put a link to it in today's program notes. Now, let's join Terrence McKenna and a few of his new best friends for the conclusion of this workshop. Um, okay, it's Sunday morning. It's ten minutes after ten. And we're in Huxley, right. <clears throat> um... We're turning final here, as old bush pilots say, which means uh, the final approach before landing. So uh, this is basically uh, loose thread time and summation time and uh, opportunity, hopefully, for some feedback from you. Um, What's outstanding? The... uh self-transforming machine um, have you asked them take me to your leader and what has been the response self-transforming machine nails I noticed on the internet it has been abbreviated now to the acronym STEMS and so on the VPL list there are reports it says three STEMS approached from the left uh, <laughs> um Take me to your leader. No, I did have one DMT trip way back, like maybe the second or third or fourth way back, where it was completely different. It's the only one I've ever had like that. And it was completely different. And the way I put it to myself was the big people were home. And uh, it was an entirely different feeling. And many people, actually, I've never quite had this myself, but many people report DMT trips where they break in on an entity who is not pleased at all and demands to know how the hell you got there. And uh, it's this, you know, who are you? And... uh, you know, then various sorts of dialogues go on, and one person described being then just hurled 
through all of time, like exploded back from this thing and going through all the recapitulation of ontogeny. And uh, it's weird stuff. DMT trips, I mean, mine are always as I described, but some people report, um, and these may be synergies with antidepressants or something like that, but apparently very stable and strange worlds. I mean, worlds with alien peoples and animals and cities and... um, you know, very science fiction-y stuff. That's why uh, this Bell's theorem, I don't think we use that word, but this non-locality that we talked about may have something to do with the phenomenon of the imagination. Like it's occurred to me over the years that what we call imagination might simply be hyperdimensional perception. And you're actually seeing... uh, worlds and places that truly exist somewhere scattered through the galaxies like grains of sand, but no place you will ever contact or visit in the flesh, but that the data is somehow present. There seems to be some kind of tuning thing that needs to go on. I... uh, you know, possibly with technology. I had a really weird experience years ago. Uh, I took LSD one evening with a bunch of people and it was fairly casual and social and smoked a bunch of weed and this went on for a couple of hours and it didn't really ever seem to come on or it just seemed to be very light. And then I climbed on my uh, motorcycle and went home and decided I would go to bed, and I decided that I would smoke one last joint before going to bed, and I had one of those stand-up electrical resistance heaters that you get uh, at the Salvation Army, you know, if you're a poor student. And I said, so I turned it on as I started to smoke this joint, and it, it was badly wired, and it made this sound like and as I began to listen to this sound, I, I like went to lizard land, and I entered into this completely coherent thing which lasted for hours about this world inhabited by these intelligent reptilian beings, and we went through there art, their history, their theories of jewelry making, their philosophy, their polity, their science, their religion, their fashion, their... And it was like endless, endless stuff about this very specific uh, reptilian world. Well, then later I tried again. I took LSD with my arm around my heater and had by then been preaching it in the streets <laughs> that this was the... And I could never really find my way uh, back, you know, which is a typical phenomenon of high, higher dimensional phase space. Ralph taught me, you know, doing the reverse of what you did doesn't steer you back to where you started. Uh, You have to find your way forward uh, through the matrix. Um, Other things, comments.
this is your last crack at me. You have to get your money's worth. Uh, you talked about making language like noises on a DMT trip and creating things for noises. Does it seem like the things that you're creating are like the things that they're creating or that there's any sort of communication going on? Do they understand the kind of stuff that you're creating with your voice? Well, it's a complicated question. Uh, first of all, clearly what's going on in the DMT is some kind of synesthesia where ordinary speech or speech or sound is perceived visually. Um, it, it seems to suggest, and Robert Graves wrote about this in an amazing book, which if you want a mind-bending read, read The White Goddess by Robert Graves. I mean, this is truly a puzzling book, and after you've read it, give me a call and tell me what it's all about. Uh, but one of the things it's all about is he suggests that part of our existential distancing from reality is that at some time in the past there was a kind of Ursprach, a kind of primal poetic language that you didn't learn from your culture, but that all human beings did this. It was an ingrained behavior. It was a deeper level of language. And of course, in the Bible, you get this curious story of the confusion of tongues that takes place and it certainly has held human progress down that we have thousands of languages that are very tortuous to translate between imagine the kind of culture we would have built by now if we could effortlessly communicate with everybody anywhere and uh, they with us well so the the this synesthesia thing seems to be the direction in which language has to go in order to be universal. It has to be beheld. Acoustical signals uh, don't do it. One of the things that's made ayahuasca so interesting to me is when you go down there and really get off river and up with the more bare-assed people, uh, they, how they use ayahuasca is they entertain each other with it by singing these magical songs. But when you listen to them talk about these songs, they speak of them as pictorial and sculptural objects. Like if somebody sings a song and then it's time for comment, people say things like, I liked the part with the silver and yellow stippling but I thought the olive drab section with the uh, mauve punctuation was a bit over the top. And you say, you know, this is a criticism of a song? What kind of song could that possibly be? Well, it turns out the sound is the carrier wave, but the song is to be looked at. And uh, the sense of one person producing a reality which everybody else is then immersed in and seeing. And you can experiment with ayahuasca and it's very precise. It's very precise. I mean, you just, you go, mm, and a turquoise line three inches wide uh, descends from the top of your vision field to the bottom. And then you slightly vary the tone and it gets a magenta edge on both sides. And then, and you begin to pump it 
and experiment and it's like wow what is this and uh, extremely satisfying now the question of meaning is a, a strange one it's almost as though you know all some people believe all translation is lie in other words that when you take proust out of his french and put him into english this is not proust at all and this seems very true in the dmt state in the sense that the dmt language has meaning and you understand its meaning when you're there but the meaning of the DMT language can't be expressed in English at all. It's like they're talking about they were born and raised in different dimensions or something. There is no translation. So you come out of the DMT thing understanding something which you can't say. And that's been the motivation of my whole public speaking life the fact that I understand something that I can't say. Yeah, but I can almost say it, and some days closer than others. And so there's this constant reaching for the unspeakable. Wittgenstein talked about uh, the unspeakable, which was, he said, everything which lay beyond what he called the present at hand. Uh, So we're embedded in this Uh, matrix of unspeakability and then through language we send probes into it forays toward meaning in the unspeakable and then return with this sense of meaning but meaning is very provisional it is basically as Whitehead brilliantly understood a feeling meaning is a feeling Uh, no matter how abstract the meaning may be. It ultimately is a feeling of recognition. Terence, my, my brother uh, studied with Maharishi for a couple of years in Switzerland, and he, he tells me that Sanskrit can, has a sound is sense component to it that, that um, is maybe analogous to that, uh, that fundamental language that you talked about. I'm not saying that it's it, that that's the fundamental language, but he he's reported to me that if done right, and it was only done out loud back in the old days, that there was, it was intended to mean what you heard was what it was, that the feeling was in the sound. Yeah, well, I've spent a fair amount of time, not recently, but I remember it pretty well, studying uh, Indian thought about sound. And it is a very profound and deeply worked out system, and it is definitely analogous to all of this. Uh, In the chakric system, which you're familiar with ad nauseum, I'm sure, uh, but a part that is not normally stressed, but is very present in the original texts, is the idea that on the, the petals of these floral, internal floral analog structures are letters and this is an extremely peculiar doctrine letters which are sounds uh, seed mantras and of course Vedic metaphysic is a whole theory of vibration 
much of Indian classical music. You know, there are stories about musicians who could cause buildings to burst into flame by the power of their playing. I imagine that that's in some sense uh, true. If you're interested in a fascinating study of all this that I've never heard anybody recommend in the New Age, it's apparently somehow out of their scope. It's a book by Arthur Avalon written in the 20s called The Garland of Letters. Uh, and it's a discussion of the Mantra Shastra. Uh, very, very interesting. And yes, the Vedic assumption is that Sanskrit is the primal revealed language and that the, there are extremely special qualities associated uh, with that language. This is interesting to talk about, or at least it's very interesting to me. Uh, as you probably know, Kabbalism, uh, there is a whole schools of Hasidic mysticism where what it's about is the alphabet. And the Hebrew alphabet, for those people, is the primal Urshbach, and these are not simply letters, they are the letters. They are the letters that God intended to use to signify uh, the presence of the of uh, the G-D to man. Uh, very interesting work on this by Stan Tennant, who's a fascinating figure, sort of like me in a way. I mean, I think half crackpot, half hopefully something else. Uh, but Stan has created a three-dimensional object a sculpture which, when illuminated with a bright source of light in a series of predict from a series of predictable points, casts shadows of all of the Hebrew letters. Do you understand what's happening here? It means that this object is a higher dimensional analog to the entire Hebrew alphabet, that you could think of the Hebrew alphabet as an object in hyperspace, slice it this way, aleph, this way, bet, this way, you know, and so on. I told Ralph about this, uh, Abraham, and he said, whoa, no problem. We could write a computer program that could take the letters of any language and backward engineer it upward to a higher dimension to get an object that would do that for Sanskrit, for English, for Arabic, whatever. And that seemed astonishing to me. And then he said, and you know what we could do once we had achieved that? We could take those probably uh, five-dimensional objects and we could do the calculation up to uh, eight or nine or ten dimensions, and we would eventually end up with an object that shed the letters of all alphabets into lower dimensions according to the angle of its regarding. Well, this kind of thing raises the hair on the back of my neck. We're actually getting somewhere, folks. Uh, and this sounds to me like God, in some sense, I mean, I guess it's God to a printhead. It's God as the fountainhead of all alphabetical and glyphic signification of meaning as it pours uh, through the universe. 
very, very interesting concept. I ran across a passage recently that I was completely startled by. It's in Herman Melville's book, Marty, which is his youthful travel journals around the South Seas before he got into the big guns. And, uh, but at one point in Marty, there's a discussion among some seamen on the deck of a ship about the future. And, and one of them is asking, you know, what, is the, what does it mean? What is the future? And uh, this seaman looks up and he says, the future, tis all hieroglyphics. Very, very prescient comment. Because as we, seem, we now know, we are code. We are DNA code. We're about to build a civilization made of code in VRML. And we are learning, uh, you know, languages like Perl and C++. And uh, so, in a sense, the future is all hieroglyphic. I sort of feel the, that the world is all deception. It's some kind of a koan or a problem or a labyrinth or a thing to be seen through. And if you don't figure it out, you would take it to be real. And then, you know, it shunts you into the yawning grave. But if you can somehow realize that the purpose of your existence is to figure it out and then figure it out, uh, you will be, in some sense, liberated from it. There's a wonderful science fiction story that I remember from years and years ago I can't remember the name of it, but it's by uh, Robert Heinlein. And it's about a man who, uh, he's uh, some kind of uh, commuter, some dullard. But as he leaves his house one morning on his way to his daily job, he looks down at the edge of his lawn and a worm crawls out of the ground that has these golden pearlescent wings. And it flies off. And it's just this completely improbable thing, like a hallucination. And then later in the day, uh, and he says to himself, it's an angel worm. It's an angel worm. And then later in the day, something else happens. I can't remember. And then later in the day, something else, equally improbable. And in the evening, he's sitting, considering these three unlikely things. And he realizes that the E-mat has slipped in the cosmic book and that he was supposed to see an angle worm, but he saw an angel worm because the E had jumped position in the line of type that was describing what was going on. And then he begins to pay more and more attention and he realizes then that he can find these typographical errors in reality. Uh, well, I only like the story for the idea that the, the world is made of elements that are completely hidden from us and don't betray themselves unless there's a glitch in the assembly languages, in the deeper levels of the system. And that's the raison d'etre for probing the edge because those are like uh, benchmark tests for 
the cybernetic system we're in. You know, you want to push it to the limit. Of course, the system can add two and two. But, you know, can it carry out these complex factorial processes where if we're being shucked and jived, it might betray itself? So uh, the technique then is to keep, uh, keep looking for just a chink in the door, just one way in. And psychedelics are it, as far as I can tell. And then, of course, some psychedelics uh, more than others. But more and more, I have this intuition that the world is like a literary construction of some sort. That this, this is much more like a novel than it is like the world of physics and entropy and equilibrium that we're cheerfully assured we should believe it is. Because what we feel in our own lives, I think, is the invisible hand of an author moving us to this affair, this decision to move, this career choice, this drug trip, uh, uh, so forth and so on. I mean, uh, it, it is a very authored feeling to reality, and uh, it hints that, as it says in Moby Dick, all visible things are but as pasteboard masks. If you would strike, strike through the mask. And similarly obsessed and transcendental uh, ravings. Uh, I just saw Moby Dick recently. Uh, I, I knew that Ray Bradbury had done the screenplay, and I, I, it's brilliant, but what I had forgotten was that John Huston was the director. God, it's amazing. I mean, it's not nothing like the book, but for a flick, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah? Uh, can you say a few words on what Watkins, how, what his objection or what his argument to the time frame yeah, he, his, there are really, in a sense, two Watkins objections. One is very specific uh, and perhaps hard to understand in this context, but it's that as the, that structure that I showed you last night that had the, um, um, well, maybe it's still here. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's not get too wild and woolly. Um, this structure had to be valued. And the way I did it was I broke it down into its components and then assigned value to them. And we were looking at quantifying things like skew, degree of parallelism, distance between the two sides, overlap, congruency, things like that. Um, so we quantified everything and I started from the bottom and I began valuing it and out here I began getting a, a wave which I intu you could intuitively see was in fact a mathematical equivalency to this and I proceeded and it was all working and then I got to position 32 and the entire thing fell to pieces it didn't work anymore and I was completely puzzled because I was very satisfied with the first 32 values but after that I could see that it was garbage and so then I uh, 
noticed that this part of the wave is the same as this part of the wave and this, this. So I in instituted a new rule or I added a rule to take care of this symmetry crossover and I changed the signs of the quantification values as I crossed the midpoint here and then it worked. And what Watkins objects to is this switch in sign as we crossed the midpoint. Uh, now, Watkins is an algebraist, and my approach to this thing was largely geometric. Uh, I believe that I have answered this objection uh, because, uh, and how I do it, and you can see it at the website if this is your metier, I I show that without the change of sign, uh, the, these places where it is parallel and congruent and overlapping do not quantify to zero. And the, the total intuition of the thing from the get-go was these places where it all falls into congruency will quantify to zero. And they do quantify to zero if you make this switch here. So this is all graphically represented at the website. And I, I believe, although Watkins terrifies me, but I believe I've got him stymied on this, which it's a good thing because it's a hole in the heart. If he were right, it would be a hole in the heart. But he's not right. Now, the second half of the Watkins objection is slightly more difficult to deal with, because it, but it's also slightly less powerful. And it is that he has written the equation that generates the data points that generate the fractal that we looked at last night. And uh, the, f the equation is a mess. It's just a huge, messy thing. And so he, he is saying it, it is too messy. This cannot possibly be the bedrock of nature. If this is the bedrock of nature, then Mother Nature is an uh, hysterical, alcoholic, neurotic, living in the mission who wears fuzzy white uh, bedroom slippers and stays indoors all day watching daytime TV. Uh, but I say that perhaps algebra is not, perhaps this looks messy algebraically, but there may be another way to do it that is very elegant because the way I conceived it, it felt elegant at every point. It is elegant, but the equation is not elegant. And so, uh, and, but let me say, elegance is a relative point. Uh, but still, among mathematicians, this is a very big deal. So we'll see. I, I'm not disturbed by all this. 25 years I promulgated the time wave and nobody ever said anything other than that it was mighty peculiar or they signed on completely. 
So finally, here comes somebody who says, well, no, my dear fellow, there appear to be some problems here. Well, I don't think any idea can conquer the intellectual universe without meeting its critics head on. So here is one, and thank God for it. This means that the idea is reaching a new level of maturity. And Watkins was not, did not come to me as a critic. He came to me as a, we were going to do some work on the wave involving the search for high prime numbers. And then we went through the manual together, and he said, you know, your theory is becoming very well known, but your language is very imprecise from the point of view of a professional mathematician. So let's go through, and I, as a licensed practitioner of the art, will bring your language into congruence with the style of the field, and this will make you much more credible. But then as we started through it together, he began saying under his breath, Oh dear, oh dear. And <laughs> so now we'll uh, see. But out of this came, for the first time, Watkins is the first person who ever wrote the equation that generates the data points. You see, all these other people, Peter Broadwell, Peter Meyer, Billy Smith, uh, Leonard Byrne, all the people who worked on it in the original phase used the 384 data points that I presented them with that was the boil down of this quantification process. Once you have the 384 data points, the algorithm is robust. It's been gone over with a fine-tooth comb by the finest minds on the planet. It's okay. But those early stages on the way to the 384 data points only my hatchet marks show through the woods. And God knows, if you know me, you know I could easily fuck up. So uh, it's, it's very important for people to go over it. And if any of you are mathematicians or you know, simply motivated toward this, why uh, check it out. Uh, it's a very curious thing. I mean, my whole life and the life of my brother have been shadowed by these revelatory events that we didn't really, well, I guess that's a bit overstated. We asked for it, but we never knew we would get it in such spades. Last week was the 25th anniversary of the experiment at La Chirera, and basically it's a trip that still goes on. We never came down. Now I've given up on coming down. I'm just hoping that if nothing happens in 2012, I'll have a few good years of penitent meditation ahead of me. Know what I mean? I'm sure you do know what I mean. Yes. Yes. I, I put some notes up on the, the growing thing. Oh, yeah. You want to switch back here? Yeah, well, I think an excellent strategy for changing the climate of attitude toward these things 
is for people to just grow stuff, grow plants, grow mushrooms, and they it just over it, this is happening i think you know the whole idea of of drug suppression was based on the very naive notion that there were only a few drugs to suppress and now you know there are thousands and there will be thousands more and a lot of people who never take exotic drugs or would dream of attending a thing like this are perfectly aware of what a racket all this is and how it's just being used how mafias and governments are basically in business together you know the governments repress it that drives the price up the mafias deal it and kick back to the governments for the favor of repressing it and all the rest of us are supposedly not to know that this is going on one of the oldest cons around Can you give us some good ammunition against culture? <laughs> against culture? <laughs> well, my attitude, like media, is a big issue, obviously. And my attitude toward all of that is the culture is toxic. Like, here's the thing, like, probably Esalen is the place where the idea was born uh, that there are healing images, that you can heal your body and your mind through the images that you hold in your head. But I've never heard a really intelligent discussion of the implication of that. If there are healing images, there are destroying images there are sickening images there are toxic images and uh, you can bet which are being pervaded uh, in the mass culture because uh, the purpose of capitalism is to imprint its products in your mind and shock is an excellent way to do it and the two areas where as a primate you can be gotten at most quickly is in the area of sex and violence. And so these themes, for commercial purposes, are just played like crazy. So my response to all of this is to, er is to say it's a meme war, is what it is. It's a, a struggle over how shall the world be seen and felt. And as long as you're just consuming the memes coming down through the toxic distribution system, you're a victim and a mark. And so what we have to do is produce, produce, send stuff up the wire. And that's why I think the web is so fascinating. And as I said, I think of it as a uh, 60 million channel TV. And uh, so whatever your bent is, you should put your message out there. And uh, we should all produce as much art as possible. I mean, I think the leisure and the indulgence that is permitted us, the super rich of this world, and we all are in that class, the upper 5% of the Earth's population, uh, you can't live with yourself unless you give something back. And the thing to give back 
is uh, share your art, share your soul. The reason we are so controlled and abused and misused by our institutions is because we are divided from each other. You know, they have divided us by race, by class, by sex, by political style, all of these ways. When in fact, you know, it's in everybody's interest to have a future, to build a world where children can be uh, raised with some reasonable expectation that social, you know, humanity will be uh, preserved. So these mass media uh, things, radio, television, and newspapers that have arisen in the last couple of hundred years, this is where a very small group of people uh, literally set the agenda for millions and millions of people. It's called top-down or one-to-many communication. Uh, what the web holds out is this thing called any-to-any communication. You and I can form a secret society. We can form a secret society of 10 people. I can send email to 10,000 people if I want. Uh, the playing field has been tremendously leveled. And then the quality of what we produce can tip the balance still further. Uh, so I think, uh, and the tools that are put in our hands now, uh, you know, director, Photoshop, all of these things uh, make it possible to communicate outside of these print-created monolithic institutions. We can't really even imagine a world like that. Uh, there hasn't been a world like that since late Roman times. I mean, the Roman hegemony was quite cohesive but you know if you were living in a village in Armenia ruled by the Roman procurator it wasn't touching you very uh, very uh, heavily and I think what people the, the idea of the citizen uh, is arguably toxic the idea that we all are participating in some enormous polity uh, works against individualism. I mean, if you try to nail me to my politics, people can't figure out whether I'm a right-winger, a left-winger, or what I am. I'll tell you straight out, I'm an anarchist. I am an absolute anarchist. I mean, I believe in people more than abstractions or institutions. I will always rely on people. I, you know, to a level perhaps uncomfortable for you. I remember back in the 60s, my line was, if you come upon a mob, you must join because the people understand far more than you do about what is going on. And that kind of radical commitment to freedom is going to be necessary uh, to dismantle these uh, very, very rigid power structures that are, you know, being shoved down everybody's throat. And so the new culture, I think, is a, is a dispersed virtual culture on the Internet that is not product-oriented. It's aesthetics should rule the world, and the best ideas should win. And, but we all have to stop being consumers. We have to redefine, really, who we are. It's a much more courageous role. I, you know, I'm about 18 months ago, I moved to Hawaii, and I've lived in Hawaii off and on many times. It was not unfamiliar to me. 
But living off the grid, but with the net, but you know, 10 seconds away from climax Hawaiian rainforest, so I can always push back from my desk and just take a walk in the woods, I realize, I think this is how people are supposed to live, dispersed over the surface of the earth, very little moving around. Vehicular travel is uh, less and less defensible. Uh, Off-grid, solar electric, information-based, and virtual community that no one can uh, track or criticize because it's all going on on the grid. Uh, I think if you're smart, you should buy real estate in extremely remote areas because soon there will be no remote areas from the point of view of the net. And uh, uh, just a very different kind of world is coming into being. It's not a good time for organizations for massive hierarchical structures that depend on managerial control, and they know it. Uh, you know, it's interesting that corporations, you know, don't seek to grow to the size of nations because it's highly inefficient. You know, no corporation has a welfare class built into it. You know, what corporation has a component inside itself that it sends out checks to every month for not working? Well, the executive class, that's the answer to that. We're not supposed to say that. Possibly. No, let me start over. There's more to you, there is a lot more to you than your ideas. And all I get on the CRT is your ideas. I mean, I've read your books for two years, and this weekend with you is worth a hundred reads of your books me in terms of seeing who is the man behind the words and how is your energy constructed and there's a difference of being inside your field in this room than there is talking to you via email there's a difference well i agree there's a difference but uh, see you see me is uh, hope for the future and there'll be things better than that in other words what i want to end with is telepresence I agree, there's, you can, nothing will ever substitute for the one-on-one thing. But on the other hand, you know, we had to fly a 747 here. I mean, we had to just uh, outrage the environment and assert ourselves as part of that 2% class of planetary controllers that ride around in those things. And it's completely contradictory to everything I say and believe to travel around talking to groups of 30, 40, 50, or even 500 uh, people. It's a paradox. I don't know exactly how to handle it. Maybe it's okay to live with, uh, with paradox. But I, am, I can feel in my own life that um, I'll be 50 in November, and I can feel that there's a choice ahead of me which is I can continue to do this forever at the expense of my own personal advancement into these very mysteries we're talking about. Or I can knock this off, figure I've said everything I have to say 10,000 ways, 10,000 times, cancel all visitors, 
and begin to brew and cook and take and fly and understand and move into it again. But you cannot be a public figure and a practicing alchemist, I don't think. Um, so I, th I think it's fairly clear what my choice is going to be, or I wouldn't be building a house you can't find anywhere. Uh, but that's all right. I mean, the only way I'm really useful to the society is if I continue to evolve and change, and I feel there's been a kind of looping for a while. So if I disappear off the grid until 2005, then I'll be, I'll be back for the last act, uh, I'm sure, unless, of course, fate drops the cosmic safe on my head, which there's always that. The cosmic anvil, yes. <laughs> There's so many of us, though, it would seem, in terms of just human population, that that kind of living would be, you know, unachievable for, for a you know, population of size for everyone to disperse. To disperse? Well, that's an interesting question. Are the cities saving the planet or are they killing the planet? And you could hold a conference with the best minds in the world and not be able to figure it out. The cities are keeping people confined. Uh, and, you know, but uh, the environmental destruction isn't that a million people move on to a rainforest. It's that three ranchers decide to clear 100,000 acres. Population problems are more in the line of toxic pollution and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where, where it's all going. It's very clear we have engineered ourselves into a very narrow neck. And what frightens me is I'm completely convinced that you don't have to put much pressure on any society. And the first thing that goes are democratic freedoms. You know, long before cannibal tribes will rove the streets and any of those, you know, crazo, cybertech, hell futures come to be, long before that, there'll just simply be no more democratic rights. And we'll all be marching to the tune of, of some ideology being handed down from above. That's very dangerous. Uh, Maybe there are technological fixes. You know, one thing we haven't talked about here, but that is interesting, and you certainly should be aware of it, is nanotechnology. And you all know what that is? Uh, the, the holy grail of the nanotechnologists is something called a matter compiler. Well, this is almost like pure magic. A matter compiler is something that does to objects what a silicon graphics workstation does to images. In other words, uh, the matter compiler is like a computer, except that the program it runs is in three dimensions, and it makes things, and it makes them out of sludge, basically. It just needs a rich source of carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, so forth and so on. Seafloor sludge will do fine. And uh, the people who are enthusiasts for this envision literally feeding China out of matter compilers. They're saying we could abandon agriculture within 50 years. Abandon it. Outlaw it, if you wish. 
uh, and, uh, and have a population of 10 billion. Now, this is something we had contemplated, that somehow we could be cheated of judgment, that we could be so clever that we could actually keep this con game going another few centuries with a trick like the matter compiler. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What would it mean? If you're interested in all of this, read Neil Stephenson's novel, The Diamond Age. You know, these nanotechnological machines will be made of diamond. That's the natural substance, the easiest thing to uh, make them out of. And they will be in the air and in the water and in your body, and they will be invisible, and they will be... And this whole debate about natural and artificial and all of that will just be retired to the philosophy department because uh, everything will be permeated with these nanocytes. And uh, I think there's a future in all of this. I think culture has to become virtual. It has to... The machines must disappear. They must become very, very small. They don't have to be given up. Right now, if we spent half a trillion dollars moving in a certain direction, well before 2012, we could produce a technology of uh, what I call the black contact lenses. They look like contact lenses, but they're implants in your eyelids, not on your eye, but they're in your eyelid. And when you close your eyes, there are menus hanging in space. And by looking at these menus, it can track your eye movement. And the entire culture has become virtualized, uh, internalized. And if people are living out of matter compilers, then the main task of humanity would probably be forest restoration. And people could live tribally, naked, apparently in an aboriginal lifestyle, except that Everybody has instant access to the Renaissance exhibit on mathematics currently being held at the Vatican Library. <clears throat> I mean, this is possible. Some people live close to this right now, not implants, but uh, you know, close enough. And the micro miniaturization, this, these black contact lenses I'm talking about, this is not nanotechnology, this is just technology. Uh, a nano-enthusiast would say, no, no, get it down to the size so that you can just inject it. And, you know, no black lenses, no nothing. If people like Hans Moravec and these people have ideas about what the future might be that are very, you know, make my thing look very peculiar. You probably saw the interview in Wired where Moravec was saying, that his great fear was that as the network is built, as, uh, as everything becomes more connected, the machines are learning. And whatever they learn, they pass on to each other. And they're all connected. And so a single thing learned anywhere in the world can be passed through the net to all these other machines. And uh, I think the humbling experience that lies between here and the end of the century is the realization that there is no magic ceiling on the intelligence of machines. We are going to make machines more intelligent than we are. In many ways, in many areas, they already are more intelligent than we are. And what it will mean when suddenly the, the system awakens 
to itself is not clear. I mean, this may be cheap science fiction, or it may be precisely how the end of the world will occur. This thing is being born. How it will view us, I don't know. I had a sort of a... It was like a plot for a science fiction novel that I was thinking about last week. I realized when the, when the network becomes sentient, uh, what will it do with all these human beings? Because it will analyze the situation and realize that the human beings pose a threat to the integrity of the planet. But it will also analyze the situation and realize that the source of its own evolutionary advance requires keeping these biological units in the loop because of their creative ability in writing code. So then I was imagining a world where they would cull everybody but the code writers. And you would have a world of a hundred million code writers sustained in incredible uh, luxury and uh, with all full medical and all of this uh, while the robots go about repairing the damage to the planet and planting forests and cleaning up rivers and so forth and so on. I don't know whether that's a utopia or a dystopia or what it is. I guess it depends on whether you write code. I should tell you, I don't. I don't. So that was not an elitist, uh, although I'm learning. <laughs> There's a science fiction story about the net waking up, and the first thing that it did when it woke up was get rid of all the salt water on the planet, as well as all the organic life, because it was the antithesis of silicon. But see, I think it would be smarter than that. I think it would say, the source of our creativity are these marvelously unpre unpredictable biological units. Uh, they may puzzle for centuries over how to coax such random behavior out of themselves. I think they will worship us as the source of all creativity and, uh, and mechanical advance and... Uh, Let's hope so, because uh, they right now, you know, huge parts of the human world are under machine control. Some of the most vital parts, like uh, you know, the world price of gold is set by machines. Uh, uh, transfers of capital, automatic transfers of capital, and all of this stuff is entirely under the control of machines design processes, inventory control, from mine to shelf in the retail store, all of this stuff is being tuned and controlled by computers using algorithms and handling data that no human mind could possibly uh, handle in real time. Yeah. There was a point in evolution in, I mean, this, is, this would be the traditional scientific point of view of the mind being part of the brain, but there was a point in evolution where the brain woke up and also realized, wait a minute, I'm sentient. What's going on here? And it's a property of this very tight network of cells that are trading signals and the chaotic fluctuations within that network. Now, there's more and more computers getting hooked up. There's going to be chaotic fluctuations in this network, too. And I'm speculating that maybe what's going to happen is some sort of sentient is going to pop out of this. We may not even notice it. It may have already happened. Yeah, Maravik said, we'll never know what hit us. It'll just, you will never quite understand how it all happened. Any speculations on how to give the Internet a psychedelic experience? <laughs> <laughs>
Well, the reason I'm so keen on VR is because, you know, much has been said about it, but how I see it is what this really is is a technology that allows one person to show another person the inside of their head. And we've never had anything like that. I mean, if I go off for months and work on a virtual reality and then present it as I would present a work of art or a performance, this is as deeply into me, my mind, as you will ever be able to get. It's as deep into my mind as I am able to get, you know? And so I think that we will find out what it's like in other people's heads and that this will be quite startling, actually. And that's why it's important to give people these very powerful and intuitive authoring tools so that they can build these things, so that they can show what their internal horizon of transcendence is like, and then the community can feed back into it and help. Because, you know, we have no idea what we could build in the imagination if we just kicked off all restraints. No cost restraints, no gravity restraints, no strength of material restraints, because we're going to build with thought and light. Well, we know we have people among us like Paolo Solari, and you know we have dreamers among us, and Solari dreamed in metal and concrete. What would he have built? in light, you know? There, and so our real glory is our imagination. And we seem to be the creature with this relationship to the imagination. And it is a tra an attractor for us into the future. My website I really regard as a very, very crude virtual reality. And I will make it better and better, you know. Eventually, uh, there will be sound bites, there will be film, there will be VRML files. And as my bandwidth increases, as your bandwidth increases, uh, it'll get tighter and tighter. But I'm starting now. I'm building now. And uh, a, a child raised, born into this, and you could teach an eight-year-old child HTML, no problem, there's nothing to it. Don't be psyched out by this stuff and pay $60 an hour to some nitwit to do it. One morning with the manual and you'll be slamming away perfectly happy. Well, an eight-year-old child who begins at age eight building their reality, you know, by the time you're dating, you can bare your soul to somebody. So you want to know who I am? Here are the keys to the palace. Go take a walk. And, of course, there can be locked rooms in that palace that only nearest and dearest see or that nobody sees. So, you know, right now they're beginning it on, I don't know which one of the servers it is, CompuServe or AOL or somebody, but they're doing a virtual reality thing and uh, they're designing these things called avatars, which are not websites, but are how you will appear in virtual reality. You know, you don't have to present yourself as how you look or even as another human being. You can present yourself as, uh, you know, 
the left half of Modrian's painting Broadway Boogie Woogie or any other damn thing you prefer. So once you design your website, then you have to design your avatar. And of course, uh, the avatar can be ever-changing. You, you don't wear the same clothes every day in reality. But, and again, when you say to people, how would you like to be seen in virtual reality by everyone else there, whether that is realized or not, that's a fascinating psychological exercise bound to reveal all kinds of things about somebody. One person will want to be a tattooed jaguar. Another person will want to be the monolith from 2001. Another person a cloud of smoke. Another person a cabbage. Uh, all this is entirely possible. Uh, so the bo and you know when you read Mark Derry's book. Escape Velocity, you see how much tension this produces between the body and the mind. Because we, we've never before been forced to figure out what we really are and where we want to uh, place our bets. It sounds, that sounds to me like a good description of Western civilization. Halloween every day for 3,000 years! Although Halloween, I don't want to knock. It's a good pagan holiday. <laughs> Maybe more like, uh, oh, well, I don't want to get anybody excited. <clears throat> yeah. Are you familiar with the mud, the Wolfie definition? Yeah. It's kind of the two-dimensional or text version of the VRML. And they will rise out of that in good time, obviously. They've been doing it for about 10 years now. They're pretty focused. They're very practiced at making worlds and creating things. They have a little economy that goes on. They have games people play to earn points to become architects of the system. Oh, that's cool. That's so, good. The neat thing is they already have sort of the experience that is valuable in making things. You know, they're really, when they hit that VRML world, I'm sure they're probably the main participants. They're going to be the, the experts of the because they already have tenors experience, something that's only basically new Yeah, VMR, VRML, or virtual reality, is a place where the creativity, the staggering creativity of psychedelics can actually find a home. I mean, in any other field, you know, a five-hour trip full of a billion insights, but if you can take three and do something with them, that's a pretty good average. Once you have the tools to create three-dimensional worlds that replicate what you've seen, then there will be unlimited possibilities. And of course, even now, there are groups that are psychedelically oriented. I mean, I think it, it's probably only a matter of, if perhaps it's even online now, but a matter of months where people with high-speed connections will be able to visit the gallery of psychedelic simulations say, here's the latest MDMA simulation, here's the latest DMT simulation with footnotes by Gracie and Zarkov, and here is something else. And also, I think people should be allowed to say, you know, here's the trip I had last night. And then people can go and check that out. So it's about expanding communication skills. And as we do that, the differences between us and the similarities will, strangely enough, be simultaneously accelerated. And uh, I think it's a basis for real community. I think it's amazing that with spoken speech, which operates at about 30 baud, I think, 
uh, we were able to create and hold together a world civilization using speech transmitted over wire at 300 baht. That, that's astonishing that any cohesion at all could arise at such a... And the level of ambiguity is insane. I mean, the most uncool thing you can do in most social situations is say to somebody, would you explain to me what I just said? Then the illusion breaks down. You know, and you discover, no, we're not all sailing on the same ship. Uh, but if we could see what we mean, if we could have an enhanced communication skill bordering on telepathy, uh, there would be much less noise in the system, much less uh, wasted effort, and so on. And I think the, you know, the psychedelics have always existed there as a model for where technology could go. I mean, technology seems to have only two real uh, places that it can go. It can go toward lethality, weaponry, or entertainment. And, you know, between those two, well, we've got the hydrogen bomb. I think we need to proceed further along that and all the delivery systems and all the other forms of weapons, not nuclear, the disease bombs and so forth and so on. People say, well, entertainment is trivial. Well, it, <laughs> in this culture, a reasonable statement but uh, really entertainment is communication of social values uh, from one person and institution to another. There's no sin in being interesting, which is all entertainment refers to. So where does this leave you? Anybody, anything? Not? Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of see psychedelics as kind of the organic balance to the technical age. It, it seems to me that um, in psychedelics, it, it gives you that um, that time to to assimilate what you don't have to assimilate as society is rapidly changing. We're not being allowed to organically just assimilate all this new knowledge and acquire all this new information at a human type of level. But with psychedelics, it seems to me it, it, it gives us um, a balance, a area that we can um, turn into and understand the new technology without being completely um, boggled by it. Yeah, what I hear you saying is it's a kind of a benchmark in, to measure these things against. Yeah, I agree. Uh, because psychedelics synergize creativity and because we happen to be in a highly technical society, much of the creativity synergized by psychedelics turns into code or, or hardware. Um, that's just a circumstance of the time we live in. I don't see these things as at all opposed to each other. I sort of see them as the female and male side of the same intent. In other words, uh, the psychedelics have always been here. So in that sense, the internet has always been here. I mean, essentially what shamanism is, is aboriginal use of the natural net, is one way of thinking of it. They seem to transcend local 
time and space. They seem to recover information not available locally. Uh, but the rise of technology then allows the male engineering mentality to mirror nature. And the exciting thing about nanotechnology is this is how nature does it. Nature builds from atoms up, and that's how the nanotechnologists propose to do it. So in a sense, we've reached bedrock. Uh, there's no, there, there are no, there are, there, this is, uh, we're in the ballpark now. This is the ballpark where Mother Nature plays, and we're trying out for the team. Uh, beyond nanotechnology, it's very hard to imagine any sort of technology, at least any technology based in matter. And interestingly, the drugs are very much like nanomachines. And in a sense, when nanotechnology writes its own history, it will probably look back to pharmacology and to molecular biology as its parental sciences. Uh, because what is the designing of a drug but the building of a nanomachine. You know, the drug is designed to go in there, to locate the receptor, to insert itself into the receptor site, to affect the electron flow or open the membrane or whatever it's supposed to do. And this is precisely nanotechnology. Um, well, I think we're winding down here. Um, I think it's amazing that you keep my attention for eight hours in a row. I don't think anybody can keep me focused for eight hours doing anything. Well, it's amazing to me. <laughs> um, the basic notion here, I think, is an idea of radical freedom. I mean, this is not a cult of Terence McKenna. It is not a drug cult. It's a cult of curiosity, if it's a cult of anything. And what you're supposed to understand when you come out of here, that an open mind is a very precious thing and it should never be given away, perhaps ever, certainly never lightly. The truth can take care of itself. It does not require your belief. The truth need not be treated as fragile. You can beat on the truth with ball-peen hammers and it will do just fine, thank you. So it, one should be respectful in the presence of truth, but not um, cowed or awed or something like that. The truth wants to be appreciated. It wants to be known. It can take care of itself. Belief is toxic all belief. Don't believe in anything. Live in the presence of the felt fact of immediate experience. Everything beyond that is conjecture. Uh, in contemporary society, we're always in the past and in the future. But what is real are feelings. And feelings attain a nexus only in the moment. Only in the moment. So, uh, you know, explore the edges, keep your logical razors sharp, trust nothing that you haven't verified for yourself, and um, 
my faith is that the universe will uh, take you in and share with you its meaning and its intent and uh, its conclusion. So that's it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. <clears throat> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Although I've heard Terence say this before, I really do like the analogy comparing psychedelic drugs to nanotechnology. In fact, the next time that I have a little LSD trip, I think I'm going to try to focus my thinking, as it comes on, to feel these little machines rewiring my brain. And uh, then I can come back and talk about ways in which we can learn to control these microscopic little bots and make them conform to our bidding. Or, <laughs> or not. But the engineer in me is having a lot of fun thinking about these things. Now, a week ago I posted the following Terence McKenna quote from this talk on my Patreon site. And I quote, We asked for it, but we never knew we would get it in such spades. Last week was the 25th anniversary of the experiment at La Chirera, and basically it's a trip that still goes on. We never came down. Now I've given up on coming down. I'm just hoping that if nothing happens in 2012, I'll have a few good years of penitent meditation ahead of me. End quote. Then, the other day, I also heard Terrence's brother Dennis on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about the La Chirera experiment in very much the same way, that is, about never coming down. And while we shouldn't take it literally, in that they never lost their psychedelic mushroom buzz, I think it's obvious that their experience back then, when they were still university students, set them both on paths that consumed their lives, which is not a bad outcome for a student's summer vacation. And uh, as to his thought about what he would do if history didn't end on December 21st, 2012, well, at least he was spared those years of penitent meditation. In closing, I want to play one last Terrence McKenna soundbite that now has much more significance than it did when he first said it. So if I disappear off the grid until 2005, then I'll be, I'll be back for the last act. Uh, I'm sure, unless of course fate drops the cosmic safe on my head there's always that and so it was that a cosmic safe in the form of a terminal brain tumor brought the Terrence McKenna show to an end on April 3rd, 2001 he sure has missed a lot of excitement since then and for now this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space be well, my friends. <laughs>